Let's return in our Bibles to the second chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 2, where our beloved brother Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes 16 chapters of pure theology for us to learn the true doctrine of salvation as it stood opposed to the self-righteous, self-confident, haughty arrogance of the Jews who thought that because their father was Abraham in the flesh, who thought that because they had the law of God given to them on two tablets of stone by Moses, who thought that because they had the temple that was truly the place of God's worship of the Old Testament, who thought that because they had been circumcised and that they were the special people of God, that God would have mercy on them and judge them differently than he would judge Gentiles. We are in Romans 2. Romans 2, the first 11 verses, are all about judgment. But we know that we have a Savior. And we're going to sing about the day of Christ's coming when we end from number 370 in our Burgundy hymnals, because it's described as what a day, because the day of Christ's coming for every believer is a wonderful event, though that day will also be the day of the great judgment of the great God. And He will judge all men according to those things that are written in His books. And He has the books of our works, and they condemn us. We're covering the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 2, and we want to understand them as God has given them to us in truth. Let me, for the moment, break them into three parts. It's always helpful, at least to me, when I'm looking at the Word of God, to be able to break it down into chunks that I can chew and digest, rather than looking at the whole. And once we break into these three chunks, maybe we can break it up even a little smaller than that. The first three verses condemn self-righteous judgment of others as if they are worse sinners than you, and you by some reason that you think up, that you imagine, will be excused from the judgment of God. Verses 4 and 5 describe God's goodness and the consequences of us rejecting or abusing or despising, which is the Bible word here, that goodness, that forbearance, and that long-suffering, because it ought to lead us to repentance. Instead, it brings greater wrath upon us. When God is good to a man, and that man does not repent, that man will be judged more severely than other men. The Bible teaches that from cover to cover. Jesus preached many times, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for some of the cities of the Jews because they were given so much more light and privilege as the people of God. And we could go forward with that argument. The Lord holds us accountable for the degree of truth and the blessings that He gives us. In verses 6 through 11, there is a description of the objectivity, the truth, the righteousness, the pure judgment of God in the great day of judgment. You will not be excused because you are an exceptional person. You will not be excused by any means. And you will not be overlooked because God is partial. He is going to be impartial and his judgment is going to be equitable, meaning it is going to be fair and right and righteous, and no one shall escape, especially the Jews that Paul has under consideration in these 11 verses. In the first section, which was the first three verses, Paul condemns the Jews by using that wonderful English singular pronoun, thou. We like the these and the thous in our Bible because God gave them to us in the high English of our King James versions that is able to properly translate the Hebrew and the Greek because they distinguish between the second person pronouns 
singular and plural. Remember, in a new King James Bible, or in an English Standard Version, or a new American Standard Version, or a new International Version, or the Cotton Patch Version, or the Word Made Fresh, or the Reader's Digest Condensed Bible, they use the word you. And you does not tell us if I am speaking to one person or several persons. But when I say thou, I am speaking to one person. And when I say ye in a King James Bible or read it from a King James Bible, I am referring to a plurality of persons. Paul takes up the Jews under this singular pronoun that he opens up verse 1 with. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. First of all, in verse 1, you condemn yourself by your own logic. By looking at the list of 23 sins in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, and knowing that everyone who commits those sins is worthy of death, but you commit those sins as well, you condemn yourself. As you condemn others that you see doing those sins, you condemn yourself by your own logic. Verse 2, God also is going to condemn you because we know that God's judgment is according to truth. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That was Old Testament Doctrine of the Jews. They understood that. In verse 3, the apostle argues with these Jews, Thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? You know that your logic condemns you in verse 1. You know that God's judgment is true in verse 2. On what grounds do you think you will escape? You are thinking too much. And not measuring yourself by God's word. Thinkest thou this, O man, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Do not let anyone here think that they shall escape the judgment of God by anything you have done, anything you have said, anything you have thought. Do not think that you shall escape the judgment of God by your parents, by your nation, by your church membership. That is not how we escape the judgment of God. We escape the judgment of God by being found in the Lord Jesus Christ who was judged in our place. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He hath suffered for our sins. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. The wrath of God was poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ who forsook Him for the first time in His life. He had never been forsaken by his father. But he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he stood in our place as our substitute, the Son of God, our representative, our Savior. And he took the wrath of God and he laid down his life and died in our place. And so when Romans 1.32 says that the judgment of God on that list of 23 sins is death, We've been freed because Jesus died for us. He died to undo Romans 1.32 from hanging over our heads. Praise His glorious name. What a day that shall be when He comes, because He's coming to be admired by all them that believe, but He's going to pour out His wrath on all them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Those are the first three verses. Now we come to verses 4 and 5 that describe God's goodness. And we should first think about that goodness as it applied to Israel. Then we can take it indirectly. The Lord's been good to us. And what do we do with that goodness? Look at the fourth verse of Romans 2. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. God was rich in His goodness to Israel. He chose to walk with Abraham as His friend, the father of the nation. 
He gave them the right of circumcision to Abraham and his son Ishmael, and then all those that came from Abraham, as a sign that they were God's chosen people. He delivered them on all fronts at all times. The Bible tells us that they didn't dare touch the anointed ones of Israel. Fear would come on the nations of Canaan as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob moved among them and camped among them and fed and watered their flocks and herds. The nations were afraid of them because God was with them, the riches of his goodness. If Abraham was breeding cattle, they multiplied. He became very rich, the Bible tells us. When he went down into Egypt, the Lord delivered him out of the hands of Pharaoh, who wanted his wife. And when he went away, Pharaoh loaded him up with good things, because God turned the heart of Pharaoh to bless him. They were given the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. God arranged it that they could take the land of Canaan by annihilating seven nations and having their cities, their houses, their wells, and their vineyards, all established, all furnished, all well-built for their own. The riches of His goodness to Israel. He came down on Mount Sinai and gave them good laws that were the envy of the whole world. The laws of the Old Testament are magnificent. And if they were practiced for just five days, it would change America and Canada. My mother's a Canadian. I'll introduce you after the service. But no longer. She got a citizenship in the U.S. after many years. She's from Ontario. It would change America if we practiced the Old Testament. Do you know what it would do to rebellious youth that J.D. Salinger wrote about in Catcher in the Rye? Do you know what it would do to young people like that? Stone them on public TV. Let MTV broadcast the stonings of some rebellious youth in five days. There would be some yes sirs and no sirs at home of children to their parents. Israel was given that set of laws and the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 4, 6, and 28 that those laws were the envy of other nations. The Lord was good to them. When they went into battle, five of them would chase a thousand of their opponents. The Lord would rain hailstones and fire down from heaven. The Lord would send hornets to drive them out of the land of Canaan. God blessed them abundantly. He'd stop the sun for His people Israel. Or despisest thou the riches of His goodness? He sent them His prophets. They had prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had the Psalms. They had the Proverbs. They had Malachi. They had John the Baptist. God was rich to Israel. And what did they do with that goodness? They presumed on it to think that God had some other way of judging them, that they could live with some measure of impunity, that they could get away with sins that the Gentiles committed because they were God's chosen people. I referred to a passage in the first service. I want you to see it. It's Jeremiah chapter 7. It's one I have preached before many years ago, but I want you to see it, see its words, Hear its doctrine and the error of the Jews and understand what Paul is combating in Romans chapter 2. The riches of his goodness. This is the providence of God. The providence of God was mentioned very briefly in chapter 1 of Romans in the 21st verse where it said the reason, the reason that God judges men is because they reject the truth that He shows them in creation, and neither were thankful for the kindness He shows them in His providence. God's providence is His government of the universe and the bringing about of circumstances that result in your blessing. When the sun shines and the rain falls, fields produce. As we read in Acts chapter 14 to open this second service, The fields produce, and we have fruitful seasons. We measure our yields per acre. And we rejoice as we calculate our increasing bank accounts. But the Lord wants us to measure the yields of our acres. And none of us have any acreage committed to it. 
but we're to thank the God of heaven. It's to lead us to repentance. It's to lead us to repentance. But Israel, though blessed abundantly with a land flowing with milk and honey, took advantage of God's close presence to them and thought that they could sin and get away with it because they had the worship of God. I cannot preach all of Jeremiah 7 to you, but he said to them in verse 4, Trust ye not in lying words. This is Jeremiah the prophet to his own people. Trust ye not in lying words. Saying. This was a common saying among the Jews. And I'm not repeating myself. I'm quoting the scriptures to you. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Three times. They would repeat that. And they were lying words. It was the Lord's temple. That wasn't the lie. The lie was that because they had the Lord's temple, they could go ahead and sin because God was going to save them anyway because they were His people. They were born to the right parents. They had the right minor surgery on their male member. They had the law of God in two tablets. They had the Ark of the Covenant. They had the prophets. But that wasn't enough. They needed to be obedient. Now listen to God as He defines their lie. Verse 8, Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. This idea that you can live any way you want to because you have the temple of the Lord is a lie. And it does not profit you. Will ye steal? Is that in the list of 23 crimes one way or another? Of course it is. If, if it's there by the word such. In verse 32, Will ye steal? Murder. Was that there? And commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not, and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations. Jeremiah, in that long sentence that I just read to you, was condemning the error of the Jews by trusting in the fact that they had God's temple, therefore they could steal... And they could kill, and they could commit adultery, and swear falsely, getting somebody caught in court and lying about it as a witness, and worship other gods and get away with it because they had the temple of the Lord. Do you see their haughtiness, their presumption on God? And that's what Paul is correcting in Romans chapter 2. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness? How do you despise the riches of God's goodness? When God's good to you, You don't change your life to match His standard of righteousness. When God is good to us, it ought not to result in us thinking, the Lord's approving of the way I live. No, the Lord is leading you to repent by goodness. He doesn't deal with men always by a whip. He offers goodness, and He gives us goodness. And He pours out His goodness upon us. And it should lead us to repentance. Let no one in this church ever think for a minute that because you may believe we preach the truth here, that that is going to cover your soul. The Lord Jesus has to cover your soul or you are hopeless in the day of judgment. And He has covered our souls for all those that believe and bring forth fruits of righteousness that show that faith to be genuine and sincere and given by God. You will admire Him in that day. While we're in the Old Testament, look at Psalm 50. And let me give you another passage that applies to this subject of misreading God's activity in your life. Men misread what God is doing in their lives. Psalm 50. Psalm 50. Beginning at verse 18, listen to these words. Psalm 50 and verse 18, When thou sawest a thief, then thou consentest with him, and hast been partaker with adulterers. Thou givest thy mouth to evil, and thy tongue frameth deceit. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. Thou slanderest thine own mother's son. These things hast thou done And I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether 
such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. This is the word of the Lord. These crimes that are listed in verses 18, 19, and 20 are the same crimes and the same kind of crimes that are in Romans chapter 1. And do you know who is setting these things in order for us in Romans chapter 2? The Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit. He is setting them in order for Jews and Gentiles. Because God is silent and He doesn't jump down your throat every time you sin does not mean He approves of your sinning. And for you to think that is to deceive yourself. And so the, the psalmist warns us, I kept silent. You thought I was just like you and was approving your lifestyle. But I'm going to reprove you and I'm going to put these things in order. And if you don't consider what you're doing and change, I will tear you in pieces. This is the word of the Lord. This is what ought to be preached from pulpits. And this is what we ought to remember when we go out of here and realize that God has blessed you with good jobs, a great nation, good health, much. It's cold and and icy outside it was last night, but we had warmth on the inside. We are blessed abundantly. But that abundant blessing does not mean He approves of our individual lifestyles. The only way we can know He approves of our individual lifestyles is for them to match up with the Word of God. And how, the God, and how God describes in the Bible how we should think and speak and live. So the Apostle Paul sets these things in order. We come back to Romans chapter 2. But I want you to notice something. Psalm 50 and verse 20 and 21 said, I was silent. And thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But God hasn't been silent toward the Jews, nor has he been silent toward us. He has poured out the riches of his goodness. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness. How do we despise God's goodness? We take it in. We consume it. We use it. We hoard it. We enjoy it. And we don't give him the due that is worthy the, our creator and our beneficent, providential governor of the world, our father in heaven. We don't give him what he deserves. And so the Bible tells us that that is despising the riches of his goodness. His forbearance and his long suffering to forbear is to put up with someone's errors. Did God put up with errors on the part of Israel? Did David sin in many ways that the Bible records? Was the Lord merciful to him? Even in his terrible crimes, the Lord forbore. The Lord forbore the whole nation many times. And do you know how long? A long time. Because that's his long suffering. And so the text here by the Holy Spirit is, God was rich to Israel in goodness, in forbearance, forgiveness, and in long suffering for a long time. And he, has he been those three things to us? I should already be in hell. But I'm not. Because there's a Savior. And because he's been rich in his goodness and his forbearance and his long suffering, even above and beyond this passage. Because this passage is not talking about goodness and forbearance and long suffering in Christ. It's talking about goodness, forbearance and long suffering naturally toward the nation of the Jews. It should lead us to repentance. When God is good to us, and God forgives us, and God endures us in His long-suffering, it should drive us to repent. Because God lets you get away with a sin by not coming after you immediately, that ought not to encourage you to sin the second time. It ought to encourage you to take hold of that window of opportunity and to repent. This is where we encounter, as a cross-reference, 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise of His coming, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That passage is addressed to God's elect that Peter was writing. That's why he uses the pronoun usward. 
But God is long-suffering, not for you to live presumptuously, but for you to repent so that you can be delivered from perishing naturally. Because Jesus Christ is coming. That's the whole context of 2 Peter chapter 3. From the first to the last of that chapter. Jesus Christ is coming and he will melt all the elements of this earth with fervent heat. And therefore, because of that and in light of that, we ought to be living holy, blameless lives. But why is he taking so long to come? In the apostles' explanation, to give you a window of opportunity to repent. Because the goodness of God and the long-suffering of God and the riches of His long-suffering should lead us to repent. Whatever sin you are guilty of in thought or word or deed, whether your sins are sins of commission or omission, you've done things against His holy will or you haven't done things His holy will requires of your life. We repent in the window of opportunity God gives us. And His goodness is to encourage us along to that. If there wasn't for the goodness of God, we would think there would be no hope or purpose or value in confessing our sins. But there is, because He's so good. He encourages us to it. But when we presume on that goodness, we despise it. And when we despise the goodness of God, He has a word for us. In the fifth verse. But after thy hardness, do you know how hard it is? How hard a man's heart is when God shows him the riches of his goodness and he still will not repent. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, that's a heart with no repentance in it. Impenitent. No repentance there. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There is a day coming in which God will reveal that He is righteous and that He is going to punish every transgression against His perfectly holy law. It's coming. It's called the day of wrath. The Bible wants to comfort us by saying we have been saved and we have been delivered from the wrath to come. Praise His holy name. Jesus has saved us from the wrath to come. But there's wrath coming. And when God is good, and He forbears your sins, and He is long-suffering towards you, and you despise it by not repenting in the face of that goodness, you show a very hard heart, and a very impenitent heart, and you are treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath. As I said before we took our break earlier, when you treasure something... You want to get your hands on every bit of it and scrape in and heap up to yourself as much as you possibly can. And when you despise God's goodness, you are treasuring up. You are accumulating greater wrath in the day of wrath. The nations of Canaan had accumulated a great degree of wrath. They were the worst sinners on earth, in God's opinion. He had judged those Canaanites in Noah's own family, hundreds of years earlier, when Ham went in and looked on his naked father while he was sleeping. When Noah woke, by the inspiration of God, Noah the prophet said that Canaan would be servants to the others and would be under his judgment. And the seven nations of Canaan were annihilated by the descendants of Shem as they came in and took the land of Canaan. Why did they do that? Because they were guilty of sodomy, like America. Because they were guilty of bestiality, like America. They were guilty of incest, like America. And God said, if you don't go in and kill them, the land's going to vomit them out. Those are wicked sinners. They had treasured up wrath against the day of wrath by not only sinning against creation... Not only sinning against providence, not only sinning against conscience, they sinned against nature. Because those things are unnatural. And the Bible tells us that nature is a decent teacher at times in some subjects. Nature teaches us that a man should want a woman in bed with him. Nature teaches us that a man ought to have short hair and a woman ought to have long hair. 
that it's a shame to the one and a glory to the other. Nature teaches us that if we do not take care of our infirmed parents, we're worse than pagans who don't even know anything about God because they take care of their parents. We have denied the faith and are worse than an infidel. Their crimes were great and so God annihilated them. The point I am trying to make with verses 4 and 5 is the judgment that was going to come upon the Jews because God had sent them His prophets. He had given them His word. He had showed them His kindness. He had forgiven them so many times. So what did He do in the day of Titus Caesar in 70 AD? He leveled their city. He killed 1.1 million Jews in the worst calamity that has ever struck any people anywhere. The whole city had come together for the feast of the Passover. And they were all locked up in that city. And Titus put a siege around that city in 70 AD and brought it to the ground just as Jesus prophesied repeatedly in the Gospels and as Paul warned in the epistles. They brought wrath. That was a day of wrath. But there's another day of wrath coming that's worse than the day of 70 A.D. It's the day of eternal judgment. And so Paul, in his argument of the book of Romans, is using these first three chapters to reduce all men, but especially Jews, to a condemned, hopeless condition before God. That because God had been kind to them in the past, didn't mean he would excuse them on the day of judgment. That because they thought self-righteously that they were better than the Gentiles, the Sodomites of verse of chapter 1, that they would escape judgment. Oh no, Paul is going to reduce them all to a state of hopelessness so that he can put out Christ before their eyes and bless the church at Rome. That there is a Savior. That though the Gentiles are helpless and blinded in that helplessness, and the Jews were blinded in their arrogance, all of us condemned before God, there's a Savior provided. Verse 5 is simply saying that when God was good to the Jews and they despised it and lived with impunity and did not keep His commandments, it brought greater wrath upon them. The indirect lesson for you and me, God has been good to us. We owe Him. We will be held accountable, not only for knowing His will, but for having been blessed so abundantly And the two points together mean we owe Him a righteous life. Can we burn ourselves out for the Lord our God and our Savior Jesus Christ in the remaining days that we have? Our days are numbered. We have an old brother who has little life left. And we shall soon be in his same condition. But until then, what are we doing? Until then, we should burn ourselves out for Him who loved us and gave Himself for us, and who has shown us goodness and forbearance and long-suffering that are not even in this context. This goodness and forbearance and long-suffering is God's kind mercy to Israel as a nation. But God has been kind to us as individuals in saving our souls and putting our names in the book of life of the Lamb slain. We owe Him everything. But if we, and if we presume on any ground of thinking that we can live with impunity any way we choose. We are so wrong, and we are heaping up wrath against ourselves. If we're God's elect, we shall gain heaven, but we shall suffer in this world, and He could easily take us out of this world like He did so many of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We come to verses 6 through 11. It is one argument in its entirety, although there are little tiny aspects of it, And it is again against the Jews who thought they would be exempted on the basis of God judging them differently than He was going to judge the Gentiles. And so in the first verse, which is Romans 2, 6, in the first verse of this third section, God says that He will render to every man according to his deeds. Is God able to render? Yes, because He is a judge and He controls the souls and lives of all men. So much so is His control over our lives great and greatly to be feared, Jesus said to His apostles, Fear not them which kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear Him which after He hath killed 
hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. That's Luke 12, about verses 4 and 5 of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will render? There is going to be a day in Revelation chapter 20 describes it, when John said, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat upon it, from whose face the whole earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. You are going to be stripped of a universe. You are going to be stripped of everything. You will not hide. You can hide from your parents in your bedroom. You can hide from a teacher in the back of the class. You can hide from a pastor in a church. But you will not hide from this judge who will render to every man according to his works. Because the Bible says that death and hell will deliver up the dead to them. All the dead, past, present, and future to us, shall all stand before God. And the books shall be opened. This is the word of God. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. But thanks be to God, we are in the book of life. How do we know that we're in the book of life? How do we make our calling and our election sure? By starting with faith, but then adding to our faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness temperance, and to temperance brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if you do these things, the Apostle Peter wrote, ye shall never fall. We're in the book of life. Who will render? That passage scared me so much when I was an Arminian. Even in this city, many, many, many years ago. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So I had to ask myself, is my name in the book of life? My theology at that point in time told me that I could get my name written in the book of life if I would just invite Jesus into my heart. But that isn't taught anywhere in the Bible. When it talks about inviting Jesus in in Revelation 3.20, that's addressed to a church of saints who are already written in heaven and who are on their way to heaven, but they needed to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When you read Revelation, the book, instead of just the 20th verse of the third chapter, you find out in 13.8 and 17.8 that our names were written there before the world began. But I didn't know that yet. And so I would sit and tremble. And the preacher would say, every head bowed and every eye closed. If you were to die this afternoon, do you know that you would go to heaven? No, I'm sad to say to myself, I don't know that. Because the way I reasoned was, have I invited Jesus into my heart in such a meaningful way, according to that false theology, that God bent over in His throne and wrote my name in the book of life? And I would have to answer that question. There is no way. There is no way. And I haven't lived up to it anyway. I've sinned. I'm hopeless. No. And then the preacher would say, if you're not sure where you would go, then raise your hand. And I had to make another choice. Am I going to lie to the preacher and not raise my hand? Or am I going to raise my hand and then have to endure one of his soul winners? Oh, what a dilemma. I think I'll just go ahead and sin again and not raise my hand. Let's just cut, let's just cut right to the chase. I decided I'd just go ahead and lie and not raise my hand, even though I'm sitting there knowing that my name couldn't be in the book of life based on the theology that I'd been given. Then to find out the truth? Praise his name. Praise his name. Oh. The Lord Jesus Christ got my name in the book of life. God got my name in the book of life by free grace, according to his purpose and grace which is given us in Christ Jesus. Before the world began. Second Timothy 1.9 And so, but when we look at this verse 6 of Romans 2, who will render? What I have just said doesn't stop God from being the judge. He will be the judge and all shall stand before Him. We shall be delivered because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say, Your Honor, my Father, the book of life has the name Jonathan Crosby in it. I died to redeem him. Father, oh, you're going to love lawyers in that day, brother. I know you hate lawyers. 
And they're a blight upon the American landscape. But you're going to love lawyers in that day if you'll allow me to use that word. Because there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. And he is going to interpose himself. And he's going to stand in front of me. And he's going to say, his name's in the book of life, Father. And I died for him. And I'm going to be going up and down behind him. Yes, praise the Lord. Then I'm going to dive at his feet and grab his ankles and push you away. Because I want to be first in line. And I hope you're trying to push me away. That should be eternity. Us pushing each other away to get to the Lord Jesus Christ and love him. He interposed himself. These words that I'm about to read to you, they are horrifying. There is no hope in this passage. Romans 2, 6 through 11 is not teaching how you get to heaven. Paul isn't even hinting at it. Paul is telling the Jews that he, that God judges objectively by every man's character and conduct. If you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. And he is no respecter of persons. He doesn't give a rip if your ancestors were Abraham or if they were Cain. That's what he, that's all he's teaching. And if you get any more out of that passage, you're treading on very thin ice. Because if you try to get more out of that passage, it's teaching a system of salvation by works. Because it says those that by patient endurance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, they get eternal life. If you think that that's teaching you how to get to heaven, you're sorely mistaken. And you have forgotten that there's a third chapter of this epistle that says there is none that doeth good. No, not one. So how many are going to get to heaven that way? None. No, not one. No, not one. No, not one. You say, preacher, you're repeating yourself and it's redundant. Yes. I just quoted Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and Romans 3. Is that good enough? Because in all three places it says there is none that doeth good. No, not one. So if there's no, not one, then no one gets saved through Romans 2, 6 through 11. Neither is Romans 2, 6 through 11 a description of the evidence of the children of God. Because that is not Paul's purpose to be talking about the children of God. Romans 2, 6 through 11 is to condemn Jew and Gentile under sin that there is no hope for them. He's going to present a Savior soon enough. But he wants us to, he wants us to be crushed before the throne of God where we ought to be. Then we have a Savior presented to us. Who will render to every man? Does that allow any Jew, the old man of verse 1, to escape? The old man of verse 3 to escape? The man that thinkest in verse 3? The one that despises God's goodness? The one who's been treated well in verse 4? Is he going to be able to escape? Who will render to every man? According to his deeds. If you have sinned any of the sins in chapter 1, 29 through 31, it's curtains. It's over. And rightfully so. You know what? We know it's, we know it's just judgment. Verse 32 says, who knowing, we know, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but take pleasure in them that do them. Not only do we sin those 23 crimes, we have friends that sin those 23 crimes, and we watch those 23 crimes on television when we're being foolish and wicked, and take pleasure in it. Because you know what comes out of Hollywood? An endorsement and a promotion and a glorying in those 23 crimes. It's over. Who will render to every man according to his deeds? Let's get verse 11. For there is no respect of persons with God. I want you to notice that verse 6 is the equitability, the justice, the pure truth, the objectivity of his judgment. He simply judges based on conduct. According to his deeds. Character and conduct. If you're good, you get heaven. If you're bad, you get damnation. That's Paul's argument because he's trying to reduce Jews and Gentiles to one common playing field. Condemnation. Then he'll give us a savior. Oh yes. He's going to give us a savior. And a wonderful savior he is. Is Jesus my Lord to my soul. The wrath of God was poured out upon my savior. My Savior's already died for me. My Savior lives to intercede for me. My Savior's blood has been offered once for all my sins, past, present, and future. Do I live fatalistically because of that? Do I live presumptuously because of that? No! Lord, save us. 
what does Second Peter chapter 1 say about those people that are trying to make their calling and election sure? But if a man doesn't have those eight things in his life, it says he hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. We should never forget that we've been purged from our old sins. It should drive us every day of our life. When we walk out of this door and see the sunshine, thank you, blessed God, for giving me another day, for causing your sun to rise again, for giving me sight to see it, skin to feel it, and a body that's warmed by it. Thank you for melting the ice. Everything is a blessing from God. Six through eleven. Verse six, he judges objectively. He judges justly, equitably, fairly by their character and their conduct according to their deeds is what it says. Verse 11, there is no respect of persons with God. He judges impartially, meaning there will be no exceptions, whether Jew or Gentile. And that is all you should get out of Romans 2, 6 through 11. If you try to get more, I'll take you to the house of heresy. And I'll fill you with horror at where you're headed. Because if you try to get more out of that passage, you're missing the context. We are slaves to context. Context is our master. Paul is condemning Jews and Gentiles alike down to a state of hopeless condemnation, and then he will provide a Savior. Why must he do this? Because he has to get rid of, get rid of every human support that you think that you're trusting in for your salvation. If there was ever a people... Do you know how many people think they're going to heaven today because they're members of a church? Millions upon millions of them think they're going to heaven because they're in a church. Because Boniface VIII said, there is no salvation outside the Roman Catholic Church. Who cares what they said? You want to talk about a church that was God's? The Roman Catholic Church is the enemy of God. The church that was God's was the Old Testament church of the Jews. And Paul's reducing them down to the fact that they're going to be judged every man according to his deeds. Impartially, with no exceptions. And here's how he words it. That gives us verses 7 through 10. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give them eternal life. I ask you, how many... In patient continuance, in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. Do you think you do? If you have ever sinned one of the crimes of chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, then you have not, by patient continuance in well-doing, sought for glory and honor and immortality. You've sinned and flunked the seventh verse. Amen. God has called me to try to make it plain. I want you to understand the Word of God. There is no description of how to get saved in verse 7. There is no description of the evidence of children of God in verse 7. That is not his purpose. It's to show you that we're all going down, Jew and Gentile, especially the Jews who thought that they were going to get special privileges in the Day of Judgment. Oh, they knew about the Day of Judgment. How do you think the book of Ecclesiastes ends? You all memorize the verse before the end, but do you know the end? What's the verse before the end? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What's the last verse? For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Period. That's the end of the book of the philosophy of an inspired wise man. But do you know how many get out of that judgment? By verse 7, none. Okay, verse 8. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what what is God going to give them? Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul. There's no one accepted of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also the Gentile. And there he gets them for the first time by name. The Jew first is going to suffer God's judgment and every single one of them that does evil, according to verses 8 and 9. Verse 10, he returns to the blessing of salvation. But glory, honor, and peace God will give to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. But the next chapter is going to tell us there is none that doeth good, no, not one. 
What I'm trying to teach you right now is that verses 6 through 11 are not the way of salvation, the description of salvation, or the evidence of salvation. It is the proof that we're all condemned, Jew and Gentile alike. <laughs> For there is no respect of persons with God. And we have verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Romans 2, verses 1 through 11. We've learned it today. There's no way of escape. The Jews were much more privileged than we are. Trust me. They were God's chosen people. There is no hope for them. If there's no hope for them, I should say, there's no hope for us. We are helpless. But that's because we only went to verse 11 in chapter 2 today. You know, in the weeks to come, we know what's coming. We know what's in Romans chapter 5. That even when we were yet without strength, does this describe some people without strength in chapters 1 and 2? When we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Yes. For even when we were enemies, we have been reconciled to God by the death of His Son. You know, when we were, when we were enemies, God in His glorious sovereign salvation saved us by the death of His Son, by whom also, verse 12, we have received, no, verse 11 of chapter 5, by whom we have received the atonement to be put at one again with God. God and we have been separated. We've been enemies of His, and He's an enemy of ours. But by the Lord Jesus Christ interposing Himself between us, we have received the atonement. Spell it. A-T-O-N-E-ment. At one again. God has put Himself and us at one again by the Lord Jesus Christ. So the great division of the separation, and so that we are without excuse of Romans 1 and 2, solved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on Him, obey Him, serve Him with all your might. If you don't, you're despising the riches of His goodness and His forbearance and His long-suffering, and you're treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath. Let's stand in that day, jumping up and down, rejoicing and shouting praise to the Lord Jesus Christ for saving our souls. Amen. We need it, brethren. We need it. May Jesus Christ be praised. Forever.